Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello there, and welcome to the Scottish, ter- I've done it wrong again, the Terrace Scottish Football Podcast. Uh, because there's no football on just now, you are tuning in to our regular Saturday morning pop culture podcast, where we talk about the things that have bewitched and enriched us over the last few weeks. My name is Craig Telfer, and I am joined by three men who I'd like to go on a stand-by-me type adventure with at some point in my life. I'm probably too old to do it, but nevertheless, it would still be fun. The first is Mr. Thomas Watt. Tom, lovely to see you. Good to see you again. Thank you. Next up is the man who, if you were to slice him open, the, the statistics would be running through him like a stick of rock. It's Mr. Craig Anderson. How are we doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, up and down, up and down. You just get, <laughs> you just get through it, don't you? Uh, and last of all, it's the man with the most distinctive voice in football broadcasting. It's not Kenneth Walthamstone or Clive Tildesley. It's Mr. Tony Anderson. Hello, Craig. How are you? Yeah, I just answered Craig Anderson there, so I'm not going to repeat myself. Fair uh, enough. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> as, as you know, these uh, these pop culture podcasts we've been running for about the past ten weeks or so since uh, since we entered lockdown. It's a good chance for us just to be a bit self indulgent and talk about things we've been experiencing during lockdown. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know exactly what you're going to get. And if this is your first time tuning in, we'll be talking about something we've enjoyed during the lockdown, something we're perhaps a bit on the fence about. We are going to review a, a charming little movie, thoroughly enjoyed it, and then we're going to talk about some music that's been keeping us going as well. So without further ado, let's get on to the good, and we'll start with yourself, Mr. Tom Watt. What have you been enjoying over the past few weeks? Uh, I've just finished uh, The Juice. So David Simon, George Pelicanos, the men behind The Wire. Uh, it's kind of like The Wire in Boogie Nights with a bit of Goodfellas. Oh, my um, 
Now you are well, talking. Those are three things. <laughs> three things it, I love. Well, it, that, that's my. That's in a nutshell. It, it's not. I mean, it, it's. It's it's not as much a drama as like an ensemble piece about slow unraveling in the city and how the system slowly crushes anyone who doesn't conform to an idea of progress. So basically, it's very much like The Wire and similar themes to it. It's probably not as emotionally involving, and I'm not quite sure if it's as... I mean, I didn't live through the period that it talks about. So it's about new. It's effectively about New York City between 1971 and 1985, and it follows the same characters um, through the story arc. I mean, it was kind of pitched as all about porn um, at, and a large part of it is and it, it definitely has like some of the most explicit things I've ever seen on TV in it. Uh, it definitely is about porn and about how the sort of crime and vice in New York went from uh, being like low level prostitution to being organized prostitution to people got into pornography to people, uh, you know, the mafia got involved in that and made it big business and then you had the, you know, your Debbie Does Dallas's and, uh, and things like that. But it's, as you might imagine from the people that made The Wire, it, it's much, much, much bigger than that. Yeah. Um, so it does start off with the story of uh, a couple of prostitutes. Uh, one of them's played by Maggie Gyllenhaal, who's brilliant in it, and she's got an amazing story arc in it. And a couple of twins, um, both played by James Franco. And initially, it felt like a bit of a gimmick to have him playing these two very different twins. One's very responsible, one's a sort of grease throw off um, but you forget that he's playing two parts he's he's. I mean I know he's a, qu a questionable character at the moment but he's very very good in it and you forget that he plays two parts um, but basically as you might imagine if, from, from people that made The Wire it's Starts off about being in the 70s and then through the, the golden age of porn, it, porn goes mainstream with Debbie Does Dallas, uh, police corruption gets uncovered, um, money comes into the city, heroin and cocaine become the drugs of choice. There's the gang wars of the Gambinos and the Genovese families who start running large parts of, the fa of, of all of the things we've just mentioned. Then there's like the, the Wall Street boom, um, big real estate boom that comes in and sort of gentrifies the whole area. All the clubs get pushed out. All the, but it, so it's got all of that from the wire, but it's also soundtracked by like one of the coolest eras, you know, in the history of music. So you've got it, one of the James, one of James Franco's uh, owns this club, which is very clearly um, based on, on CBGBs. So you get kind of the, the rise of disco, uh, the Velvet Underground, the Ramones, New York Dolls, Richard Hell's, I think someone's actually playing Richard Hell in it, Suicide Television, Talking Heads, uh, Blondie, all this stuff. And they all kind of pass through the bar and pass through the clubs that he's working with. So, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's very glam gay bars in it. And it, it's only three series. My only complaint is if they, I think they'd originally planned to do five, but, you know, for budget reasons and, and, I don't know, for whatever reason, they, they cut down to three. So it's, it works perfectly well as three, but I wanted more. That's my only complaint. So, yeah, if you like The Wire and Boogie Nights and a bit of Goodfellas. Honestly, you could have just said those three things and I'd be like, right, that's fine. That's it. You do not need to say any more. That was, that was good enough for me. Three things. Of course, I was on the show last week talking about how much I love The Wire, having the chance to, to re-watch it again. And I don't want to re repeat what I said last week, but that, that richness and that, uh, the, the, the granular level of detail they go into to explain how systems work and, and how people exploit it and how it crushes people, that's really interesting. So to, to take that 
and apply it to that specific era with all the other stuff you're talking about. It sounds amazing. I just don't like James Franco. That's, I, I just well, think he's I, a, I, I don't like James Franco either, but you... He is very good in it, and he 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 can act. And he, he one of he, he he's it's almost like the two sides of James Franco. You know, one is the sort of like wants to be an artist, wants to be, uh, you know, wants to support the up and coming music, wants to make an, an honest dollar, and the other is this sort of like playboy dickhead. Um, and he's I'm not a fan, but he's he's brilliant in it. There's so many um, like of the people that were in the wire that are in it. Um, the, you know, Michael Kostoff, who was Morris, Clark Peters, who was Lester Freeman, uh, Dominic Lombardozzi, who was Herc, uh, the guy that plays D'Angelo Barksdale, Lawrence Gillard, uh, Slim Charles, and one Glover. It, 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 they all turn up. Um, and I mean everything that the the um, David Simon and George Pelicanos have done since the war has been brilliant. The, uh, Generation Kill is amazing. A little short mini series about Iraq was great. Uh, Tremé t- is a bit harder work than some of them, but it's is amazing. And again, about how society's kind of been torn down after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, and and how the vultures are circling and people are not helping to make money out of it. But, but just this, this era, the people that are making it, and like you say, the sort of granular level, and it's got the same attention to detail as The Wire where you only notice sort of six, series, uh, six episodes after something's happened, mm-hmm. that that little subtle nod, that those two people meeting, that that person going into an office with that, this is what it means, and it means that someone that you actually quite like is fucked. Brilliant. Very, very good. So where do you, where do you find that, Tom? Uh, it is on Now TV. That I think all certainly two series are on Now TV was or Sky Atlantic, um, but all three series are on Amazon. If you're willing to pay some money for it, no, I think I definitely will. That sounds absolutely great. To be fair, what about yourself, Tony? What have you been enjoying? Well, I've went very uh, sort of basic as I have done a couple of times in the past, but I have been watching this for the first time and it's something that's been recommended for years and everyone tells you that it's the absolute best. Uh, and it's the American version of The Office, uh, Mr. Telfer. Right. And I, I've, never, Tony, I'll be honest and say, I, we've spoken at length about The Office. I think it's probably, probably one of my favourite TV shows mm-hmm. of all time, you know, massively, as we said at that time, massively influential and shaping like my comedy and my sense of humour uh, as, as a teenager. But I've never actually watched a full episode of the American office. I, you'll need to tell me, but the, the first two series, or certainly the first series of the American office, was almost like a shot-for-shot remake mm-hmm. of the original, and it didn't quite work. But then the further it went on, it more took its own path and became that's, very good. That's, that's absolutely correct. I'm in the exact same boat as you, Craig. I've almost uh, deliberately not watched it despite people telling me how good it is and uh, the fact that it grows into something bigger I mean Ricky Gervais himself has sort of put himself out there and stated that over time I also thought this would be a good avenue for you to continue your Ricky Gervais passion which has went went, it's it's not happened for the last few weeks so I thought there might have been an avenue to do that I've said all I'm prepared to say in the matter (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah you're you're absolutely right the first couple of seasons I was very uh, I wasn't overly impressed with that. I didn't find myself laughing out loud very often. Uh, but because of, I think, Andy Harrell, um, uh, one of the Terrace alumni, he had told us numerous times to push through those first two seasons. And he, he couldn't have been more correct. It's much more, as it moves on, there's 24 episodes, I think, in a season. So there's huge amounts of content 
in this in this season. I mean, by the time you're getting to the end, there's nine seasons, so we're talking we're kicking around the 200 episode mark like for sort of a, a, a comedy sitcom. But yeah, once it hits sort of season three and four, it is it's much more bombastic than than the original Office, as you can imagine. They have to go a bit more over the top. Uh, due to the fact that there's just such a sheer number of, of episodes. Um, the beauty of that, as well as um, the side characters, or the more peripheral characters, they get developed a lot more uh, than maybe what they do in the UK office. What it does lack, as you can imagine, is the same sort of heart and soul as the UK office, because there isn't such a sort of consistent story arc over it, and you don't have the big will-she-won't-she she with... Uh, so you're Tim and Don, that sort of happens, without giving the game away to a lot of people, that sort of happens relatively early um, in, the, in the whole series, maybe like season four. How does that uh, work, Tony? Because you imagine, imagine The Office, if they'd gone back to The Office for, for The Office Series 3 and Tim and Don were like a couple mm-hmm. in it, you, all that tension, because that's, that's like, that was one of the great things, particularly during the second series. Remember, actually, the only bit in The Office... I cannot watch. The only bit now is I actually have to close my eyes when see, uh, watching it. It's the final episode of the second series where Tim pretends to slow dance with Don and mm. Lee comes in and shoves him up against the wall. Yep. Cannot watch it. C- cannot watch it. But uh, if you take away all that tension and they're together, is it as good without that Without that there? It's sort of like the what they do in this is the from what I've seen, obviously, I don't know what happens towards the end. I don't know if there's a an issue in the couple at any point, but really all the way after it, they're just basically just so in love. Uh, and I think a, a lot of The Office, there's even an episode that's dedicated to sort of Valentine's Day where everyone seems to be a bit jealous uh, of them and they want to have their own sort of Valentine's Day party that they're not allowed to come to, uh, but they just get on very well. Dawn moves away in the office to do the art school stuff that I think we spoke about in the past that might come of it. So she has to move to New York, granted from Scranton, which is where this is based. Uh, that's only about uh, an hour an hour or two drive, so it isn't impossible. But yeah, she moves as sort of like a mature student working on sort of graphic design. And they link that into sort of like the her wanting to learn how to make the company logo, the brand new logo. But as I said, the peripheral characters are are so good, even like sort of Michael Scott, who plays um, the sort of David Brent character in this, played by Steve Carell, as I'm sure everyone knows. Um, she, he's, he has like a lot more love interests, uh, and he starts sort of going out with Jen, who works in the, in the corporate part of the, of, the, of the project. And she, like, she sort of fights that I thought there. The way that they do that is absolutely brilliant because she clearly does it. She hates him and calls him out all the time about his ridiculousness uh, and finds him nearly impossible to work with. <laughs> and then eventually they get drunk together and there's a kiss and then it goes on for ages, but she ends up just treating him like absolute shit and he sort of just accepts it. Um, so see, he's a bit more, I find uh, Michael Scott a bit more of a arsehole than maybe sort of David Brent was over the over the years, but they still have those moments where you can't help but feel sorry for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he does similar things to David Brent through it, where he sort of wants to throw everyone else under the bus to sort of move his career on, even though he constantly talks about how it's a family. Uh, <laughs> but then when it actually comes to it and he's got the opportunity to make more money, uh, he wants to do it, but he wants to do it on the sly. He also finds it impossible to have difficult conversations with anyone. 
uh, as, as, as I'm sure you're aware from the UK one, but there is, I'd say the standout character for me is Rain Wilson and his portrayal of Dwight Schrute, who is, if you want the sort of UK analogy, it would be Gareth. Um, he has some of the, the best lines, the best uh, pieces. I mean, I watched an episode uh, just last week where they have like a fire drill uh, and I, I don't think they would have been able to do this in the UK office. I think it was a bit over the top. You probably couldn't have done that in the early series of the US office. But once you've got to the stage where you know these characters so well and the ridiculousness has happened, it is like just jaw-droppingly funny from, from start to finish, him doing first aid. Um, I've seen the first day. I've seen, I've seen that clip. The first day one yeah. where he cuts off the dummy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wears it like a Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, That's uh, very funny. Yeah, so he did. But that whole episode starts with him basically setting a controlled fire in the office because he wasn't happy the week before because nobody was listening during his fire safety talk. <laughs> uh, and then, one of so, the things with that character, like I find him very hard to look at. I've never fully watched the US office, but I find that guy just very disconcerting as a yeah. like a person to look at, which I know is a horrible thing to say, but I know it's kind of hammed up as well, but it's, it's genuinely one of the reasons I haven't watched it in full. Like <laughs> I just see that guy's face. I'm like, I don't think I could sit through hours and hours of watching him. Like you don't get that with Gareth. I think he seems like the standard annoying guy that... But no, Gareth, Mackenzie Crook played that so well. I mean, I'm sure he went to the hairdressers and asked for a bad haircut. That's, that's to degree. <laughs> in fact, he's got those big, like weirdly blue eyes, the big nose as well. And just he's really, like his suits are too big for him. No, no, like I've never seen anyone, I'm going to disagree with you there, Craig Anderson. I've never seen anyone who looks quite like uh, Gareth Keenan. Just a bizarre looking warm of a man <laughs> so here's one right I, i've never seen either the american or the uk office wow when should i start with oh, watch the uk one because you can just it's only what six episodes a series and then you've got the two christmas specials and it's much more of a as i said it's much more of a as much more of a story arc right and maybe the us one there is don't get me wrong there is story arcs there's character development and all that but again it's just so much longer uh, but the payoff in the UK office, and it's something, as we've discussed before, we don't think that Ricky Gervais has ever been able to recreate no. uh, that type of payoff mm-hmm. in anything else that he's, he's ever written. Um, it's it's so worth it. I'd be interested as well, Tom, if you were to watch it. I mean, like like Tony and I said, at, at the top there, we watched this, we'd have been about 13, 14, 15 when, when yeah. we saw it for the first time. And it, like you say, massive influence on, our, on how we shape, watch comedy and stuff and, and really set the benchmark for us. So we're interested in you. And I mean, that show's nearly 20 years old. That'll be 20 yeah. years old next year. So if you were to watch it for the first time to see what, what you mean, that's your homework for next time. Okay, that's my homework. I'll, uh, watch, I'll, watch I'll get on it. Office. <laughs> I still remember the first time I watched the UK office. It was uh, when he takes that sort of minute. I'd never seen anything like that uh, on TV and I was watching it in my bedroom as, as, a, as a young guy. Uh, and it was season one, episode four. Same. When, yeah, that was, that it, was, was it. it was the line, like, I think there's been a rape up there. yeah. 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 That's, that's what I, I remember watching it just thinking, because I'd seen that thing, I remember watching the 11 o'clock show, which was on Channel 4, it had Ian mm-hmm. Lee, I can't remember who, who Daisy, Daisy Donovan, that's who mm-hmm. was on it. Ian Lee, Daisy Donovan, and Ricky Gervais in a section, and I remember seeing Ricky Gervais from that, and he wasn't particularly funny on, on the 11 o'clock show, but I remember seeing him in that, and thinking, I, I couldn't tell if it was real or not, but I remember that joke, I think there's been a rape up there. 
and that was the absolutely end of myself and yeah. telling my mates at school did you see this and this guy he brings a guitar out and and, and starts starts playing and just oh man absolutely in bits watching it but like I, the I, other- remem- I remember seeing the first episode and I think it, I, unlike now where you would know straight away oh this is a you know a comedy show it just comes on the telly and you're like is this because there was a lot of documentaries like that at the time which is why it it took off, I think, and, and you're like, it took you a little while to realise it wasn't a genuine behind the scenes kind of thing because mm-hmm. it was it was shot in exactly the same way that it would have been. And I think that's one of the things as well that the office precipitated the rise of these uh, these mockumentaries, as it mm. were, and they became certainly immediately after that, for about the two three years after that, very very prevalent. Uh, so you mean that's you're absolutely right, Craig, that you would spot that thing a mile off mm-hmm. now, yeah, but at the time. That like me watching and thinking, I don't know. Even though I recognise Ricky Gervais, like, I don't know if this is real or not, or if it's supposed to be. Funny. <laughs> is it went this badly since eleven o'clock show that you know is <laughs> runs a paper merchant and invernable? But because of the sheer length of it as well, the US one, there's more sort of there's more types of humour to it. There's a lot more mm-hmm. sort of one-liners and stuff like that that you probably don't get in the UK one. You still get obviously one-liner, but if you understand what I mean, just because there's more types of humour, there's more layers to it simply because there's so many characters, so many things that happen. There's a lot more cameos from different people. Of course, I just watched an episode that really took me out of it. I thought I'd criticise a bit was uh, Idris Elba turned up. Uh, of course he did. I, was like, I don't know why I'm surprised that Idris Elba has turned up in this. He'll turn up in absolutely anything. <laughs> uh, and, he, and he doesn't have the comedy chops for it whatsoever. No. He just stand, he stands out like a, a sore thumb. He's, uh, a, he's a funny one, Idris Elba, because he is, as I'm sure I've said this before, I mean, he is absolutely out of this world as Stringer Bell. You know, he's brilliant as Stringer Bell, really quite a dark dark edge to that character you know and there's such a complex character in the wire and then also he played Luther and I love Luther even though I know mm-hmm. it's absolutely ridiculous and over the top and the, like the payoffs well, yeah. are, the, the, is, all the setups are really really good in Luther but the payoffs never really quite quite match it but he's one of the most charismatic and he's really good to look at you know just the way he dresses the way he carries himself in both of them and then just seeing him pitch up and punting skyboxes all the time <laughs> like jumping over sofas and, and playing with his mum and stuff and you're just kind of like ah come on man I was laughing yeah. he was he was in the media the other, the other week uh, talking about how he thinks that we should now have a month off to celebrate lockdown for all of a, uh, for, for the rest of time so he wants all, <laughs> all businesses to shut down for a month a year <laughs> that, that doesn't tell me that you're, you're out with you're out of touch <laughs> that, 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 nothing will uh, and lastly just I thought there's an interesting bit is it because uh, John Kaczynski plays Jim Halpert who is the equivalent of Tim and I just thought it's quite funny that the same the guy who played that just like Martin Freeman has went on and had like sort of like an absolutely massive career yeah, man, he's directing movies, he's married yeah. to Emily Blunt. You really have to say, fair play. Wait, absolutely. To Emily Blunt. Um, so, yeah, it was quite interesting that the exact same thing happens, except who's Martin Freeman married to? Has he had? Uh, has he uh, got- I'm fair to say, I'll, I'll just go Google him just now, but I can <laughs> bet, I can wager it will. she will not be as um, perhaps as desirable. Somebody called, he was going out with somebody called Amanda Abington. Uh, no. No, 
<laughs> and that might lead me into something else next time I think I might talk now I'm talking about Martin Freeman I might talk about Fargo the TV series oh good next choice man. good choice well, well, well the thing I've been mostly enjoying over the past week is The Last of Us Part 2 uh, this oh, yeah. is have you played it Tony you played it yet no not yet I've never even played The Last of Us so I'm de- I, I've, saw, I've saw it all on the telly and it looks yeah. jaw dropping and I like the fact there's a huge storyline behind the tension wow. It's like, I, it's, this will be very difficult to talk about without giving away spoilers, so I'm going to do my, my, my very best now. The Last of Us Part 1 came out in 2013, so if you've not played that, then, well, that, that's your own fault. And The Last of Us is effectively The Road meets 28 Days Later meets Children of Men. So if, if you like those sort of stuff, then you'll absolutely love this. It's a, a fungus has infected humans, and it has turned them into these ravenous killers, similar to 28 Days Later. And there is a young girl who is immune, who's been bitten by an infected and is, is not showing any symptoms and she might be the, the, hold the cure to rescue humanity. And you play this character, Joel, who basically has to take the girl to the other side of America to find, to see if she's got the cure. So there's your element, 20 days later, the road uh, and children are men. And that game itself is amazing. Like, very, very brilliant. The storyline's really good. The uh, So well written, so naturalistic, very, very violent, just brilliant fun to play. And one of the best twists, one of the best twists in an end, the end of that is like, whoa, right. Oh man, see whoa. the ending, just the way Ellie says, okay, at yeah. the end, it cuts to black. You're yeah. like, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, which is which is amazing, proper heart rending stuff. So this 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 picks up um, four years uh, set four years after the first game, and it's 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 a bit slow. It was a bit slow. I'm, I'm eight hours into it, and when I finished playing it last night, it was like whew, I cannot wait to get back into this and and see how it progresses. It is pitch black, like like in terms of the way it's set. It is. There was one scene that, that I walked into where I was absolutely horrified by what I saw. <laughs> but you're like, I cannot wait to see what happens next. It certainly, there's a couple, the bit where I'm at in the game now, there's a couple of seeds that have been sown for what I thought the game would be like when it was announced and I saw like a, a, a trailer for it. I thought, ah, I think this is what the game's going to be about. And having seen wee bits and pieces and picked up notes here and there, this is the, seems to be the direction it's going in. And it is, it is amazing. I mean, in terms of violence, I was playing it last night. You've got to kill a wave of enemies that come into the building where you're in and you shoot them. So you've got, your, you've got a wee pistol and you, I shot a guy four times like various different parts of his body and he falls down to his knees. And so to, to, he was panting bit for his life and he says, so he goes, are you going to finish me, bitch? And rather than just shooting him again, I had a, it was like a big wrench, like a monkey wrench, one thing that's about like three feet long, and you just leathered him across the head with it. And I felt hugely satisfying to do. I chopped somebody's throat out uh, with a machete, you know, the sort of things that you use to chop down bunches of bananas from trees. Um, and it's, it's incredible just the, the way it is. I mean, you're, you're simultaneously repulsed, but it's, it's really good fun, like jabbing a knife into into someone's throat. I can't uh, I can't quite explain. Granddad, what did you do during lockdown? <laughs> yeah, that, that's. Uh, I think there's a lot more of the game to go. I think it's about I don't know if it's sixty hours long. The game had a data disc for it, which suggests to me there's you know it's got a data disc and a game disc. So that to me suggests that there's a lot a lot of game to go. But where I'm just now, I cannot wait to find out. 
uh, where it takes me next. It's just the story. The, the story of it's incredible, and I can completely understand why they, there's the the will, willingness to adapt it into a into a TV show or a or a movie at some point. It's uh, it's not the type of game that like I typically play, but I heard the the producers or the makers on the radio, and they were saying, you know how you said it started slow. Yeah, they said that was like a conscious choice because they yeah. wanted people to get into the kind of game mechanics before totally. it accelerated. So it sounds like you've probably got the acceleration to come. Like Tom, you you've you've played the first one, so you'll agree. Like the about the first half hour of The Last of Us is pretty high octane and very heartbreaking. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm played, I'm, I want to play the second one. Um, I need to find sixty hours somewhere. I, I really, I do have to play. It. But the first, the the, uh, the first one, it kind of starts with a sort of gut punch, and I mean, play it. I won't, I don't want to spoil it because there's several amazing twists that are worthy of any film in it. But the the uh, it opens with a fairly heartbreaking scene, and then. Um, you're kind of thrown into the action, but but it unfolds really nicely. It unfolds yeah. really slowly. It's one of the few. It, I mean, it it it's sort of got a bit of the survival horror of it, but it's much more about tension. Yeah, and there's loads of uh, sort of like the like Splinter Cell style um, or Thief and games like that, like stealth elements where it's just super tense for like two hours. There was, there was a bit in it last night, Tom, where again, I don't want to give away the setting or anything like that, but it's done under like a flare. So it's complete darkness other than a flare. So it's this pink and it's just incredibly tense. And there's a bit where you've got to run away from a bunch of enemies. And I'm not kidding. You ever get that way? You're so nervous. You can feel it up the back of your legs into your, it goes all the way through your heel up the back of your legs into your arsehole. That's the sort of tension that I had where, where my, basically the entire lower half of my body was curling up because I, I was so worried about uh, trying to escape this scene. And I, I can't wait to, to see where it goes next. I'm going to try and sink another couple of hours into it uh, at some point over the weekend. Great fun. Craig Anderson, you've been sitting there patiently. What have you been enjoying? So just thank, thanks for uh, inviting me on this for the first time. It's good to... Um, well, listen, it's great, you know. to, it's great to have you all on. I know you guys have been waiting patiently to <laughs> these podcasts, so great to, great to see you here with us. Um, yeah, so I, um, I think I'm contractually obliged to pick something Canadian every time I come on here. So I, I picked uh, the, the travel show Departures. The first time I had Carly Rae Jepsen's album, the last time I was on. Uh, it's a TV programme, it's uh, called Shit's Creek. I don't know if anyone's ever watched it. The name alone, Craig, does not inspire yes. confidence. <laughs> no, no, I, I would appreciate that. And, and I had similar misgivings, but it's um, created by Eugene Levy um, and his son, so from American Pie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of a comedy show. So basically, he is a former video store magnate, a, a kind of big, rich owner of a kind of video chain. And his wife is a former soap actress. His wife is played by, it's a, the, the, this is Eugene Levy. And his wife is played by Catherine O'Hara from the Mum from Home Alone, mm-hmm. um, and they have two kind of spoiled adult children, and then the family gets kind of defrauded by their business manager, and therefore, what what essentially happens is they've got nothing left except that. In I think in the early nineties, Eugene Levy had bought his son this town called Shit's Creek as like a joke, and so it's like an absolute like shithole as you would imagine, but. Um, he's bought it as a joke for him and that's all they now own is this town so they kind of go and live in it and so the premise sounds a bit yeah, silly 
but as a as a comedy show, it's quite quick and it's quite short, and it actually is really nice because you kind of see the character arcs developing. You see the two kind of spoiled adult children sort of developing as people in, in a way that, you know, they, they've been taken out of their kind of life of luxury to suddenly have to kind of make it themselves. And that, that name, Craig, that's the thing. I've seen it on Netflix and it's the sort of thing that you roll your eyes and, and go past. What was it that pulled you into it? What, what was the decision that you said, yes, I'm going to... things that you go past on Netflix and roll your eyes and go past. I know, I was thinking that, that's that hard the, to believe. Um, I think actually we were on holiday and, and my wife put it on. So that was what made me start watching it. Um, and we've, we've watched it. Um, yeah, because as you say, the whole thing's on Netflix. So a couple of times when we've been on holiday in, in a place that's had it, you know, we've come in at night and we've thought, oh, this is something to stick on. And then the final series has just been, so there's only six series of it in total. The final one's just finished. Um, and it's on it's on Channel 4, actually. So you can even if you don't have Netflix, you can get the final series on Channel 4. Um, but but yeah, it's it's just that nice kind of. They're, they're, I think thirteen episode series, thirteen or fourteen, so they're quite quick because they're only half an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, you can rattle through them, much like a lot of the commentary we've talked about. It's not something that you have to sit and study. It's it's kind of background TV, but it's 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 very funny, um, and you you get these little kind of side side arcs. I think I, I enjoy these programs that are about these kind of quirky towns, and you kind of because I think because they can play up on how. How much of a kind of weird shithole the towns are. The characters can become kind of caricatures, and can, but they, you can get away with it because you can actually imagine these small villages or towns having these types of people. But essentially, they move into um, a motel in the town, and eventually, Eugene Levy's character kind of buys into it and, and ends up kind of running it or, or co-running it with the, the woman who owned it at the time. And, and I think you start to see them kind of realising that, as you say, that the moral of it, I guess, that you can kind of live a, a good life wherever you are and kind of stuff like that. And, and apparently the inspiration was um, Dan Levy, who's Eugene Levy. So his son, um, who made the film with him, is also, who made the, the stuff like that actually also in it and plays his son in the um, thing. But he was watching a lot of like the kind of Made in Chelsea type programmes and said he was kind of curious as to what would happen if these people were lifted into kind of real life as such and how the how the same programme... So they're watching that programme. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, yeah, literally. But, um, literally. but yeah, so we've really, really enjoyed um, kind of watching through it. It's, as I say, it's not it's not highbrow. It's not like some amazing, you must watch this, but it's uh, it's kind of kept us amused. And we've not quite got through the, the last series yet, um, but kind of looking forward to seeing how it, it ends there's a, there's a wedding um, kind of been talked about so I, I'm guessing the, the wedding's going to be the finale but I, I could be wrong you know there's there's no shame in, in enjoying lowbrow stuff you know I think during the, the start of lockdown a lot of people might have had good ideas like finally I'm going to I'm going to read Ulysses or I'll, I'm going to learn how to speak Cantonese and then that's it you just end up watching office reruns again and again and again and again so don't uh, don't, don't, don't beat yourself up Craig, you've you've got a doctorate. Listen, mate, you're you're smarter than everyone else in that Evolve the Terrace podcast put together. So, yeah. yeah, you don't need you don't need to use your your pop culture as a way of like showing that you're not a moron personality <laughs> like I do. <laughs> you can get away with it. <laughs> so, what about? I mean, we've talked about the stuff we've enjoyed. What about things? that we are on the fence about. I'm, I'm going to kick this off here because I am on the fence about, it's sticking with Netflix like yourself, Craig Anson, but I'm on the fence about Rick and Morty. And and the reason I'm on the fence about Rick and Morty is I, I, I do genuinely think it is 
It is absolutely tremendous. I think it's one of the funniest cartoons of probably the funniest cartoon I've watched since, since The Simpsons. I think that the it's brilliant. The parodies, the level of satire is brilliant. The the, the sheer imagination of uh, where these characters can go. It's effectively like um, the Back to the Future. It's a grandfather who's a mad scientist, alcoholic scientist, who is Rick, and they sort of put upon 14-year-old grandson, Morty, and they go through all these infinite dimensions having these adventures. And because there's so many dimensions, nothing really matters in it. There's no lessons learned. There's no... There's no messages, you know, there's nothing to take home from it other than just like, you're all going to die, so you might as well enjoy yourself while you're, while you're here. Uh, so I, th- I think the show is brilliant. However, I'm, I'm always quite cautious to say the fact that I do enjoy Rick and Morty because the fan base are absolutely horrendous. They've got, it's got an absolutely vile fan base. Um, a couple of examples, when they announced that they did it on the show. Rick said something about Szechuan sauce. sauce I looked yeah. into this. Yeah, the sauce had been released as part of a promotion with Mulan, and so the McDonald's uh, McDonald's released this promotion in the late nineties uh, in association with Mulan, and because it was mentioned in Rick and Morty, McDonald's thought brilliant. We'll, we'll bring it back again uh, for this, and obviously, like Rick and Morty, hugely popular. So within hours around the United States, this sauce had sold out. But the, the fans, there's people protest, turned, started turning up at Branson McDonald's to protest that they were being withheld this Szechuan sauce. <laughs> it's pathetic. Even, even trying to say that is absolutely pathetic. And <laughs> perhaps even, that, that, that's bad, but perhaps even worse, like for the, for the Series 3, they announced they were bringing in a team of female writers, or there's not a team of female writers, but bringing more female writers into it. And that led to outcry from some of the, the fans of the show, and it led to so like some of the, the women getting harassed online. And I just think that's absolutely pathetic. And this, this sort of sense of entitlement and this sense of, like, it's mine, I don't want anyone else to like it, I, I find that really quite hard to believe. So if anyone anyone says they're like big into Rick and Morty or I see anyone wearing a Rick and Morty t-shirt, I'll think this guy's a bad egg. However, I can completely understand where the where the fandom comes from because it is such it's such a good show. It's so entertaining. And I've watched it like about three times because you can just stick it all when I'm working. I just put I've still I've kind of packed in watching after the wire, I thought I'm spending too much time. I previously before watching the wire I'd been watching shite TV. After the while, I thought, no, you can spend your time watching brilliant things. And so I've watched Rick and Morty, um, and all the Peep Show as well. well Enlightened, Craig. We'll save, that for another, we'll save the Peep Show stuff for another day. Um, and I think Rick and Morty's brilliant, but it's just it's, uh, the fan base is problematic. It's, no, weird, what, it's weird what point it, it, that happens, because like, there, there's like, big fan bases of certain things, like the Star Wars fan base seems to have gone... I mean, maybe always was, but there's that had that's had similar issues. Um, you know, I don't know if it's just a certain subsection of stuff that's in Forbidden Planet that that causes people <laughs> to go mental. But you don't seem to have that with like huge fan bases on The Simpsons or you know other even South Park, which seems to be total nihilist and a, a sort yeah. of similar bent, doesn't seem to have the same. It's got its own problems, but it doesn't seem to have the same sort of radical anti-feminist entitled dickheads as fans I've seen a handful of Rick and Morty th- things and I've really enjoyed it but I, I, don't, I, I wasn't aware of the uh, 
added extras label. that comes with the, the fans. Yeah, <laughs> with, the, with the man you like it. Yeah, they added yeah, extras. Yeah. <laughs> Dan Harmon, who I think he was mentioned in Community. I think it might have been Robert Borthwick talking about Community a couple of weeks ago. Dan Harmon uh, is the, the created Rick and Morty, and he's actually come out and said that he hates this section of the fan base. It's interesting because a lot of the time people will stay silent because these are the guys that consume the product and will buy the merchandise and spend their money on it. But he's come out and said, now nah, these people are like, they can go and fuck themselves, which is which is interesting to see him stand up to them. Yeah, and, uh, not, not like uh, someone we know with their Republicans buy sneakers too attitude. Um, but... Uh, I name names. I'm not naming names. <laughs> um, but... Uh, the yeah, I think it can be weird how these programs can be made from like the best place and can be made, and then it's funny because you get programs that are specifically like almost the antithesis of what you describe, and yet can still get picked up by a fan base who end up like representing that exact thing that the program itself is almost parodying or or yeah, you've missed a memo somewhere. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's, yeah, like, yeah. it's like <laughs> but it does. I was I was trying to think of examples when you said that, but it does happen quite a lot where you just get this kind of toxic fan base and you're like do you even understand the program that you're you're mm. I think as well, in some cases because we spoke about uh, Ghostbusters 2 on the show and that led us on the, to discussion talking about Ghostbusters and the, I mean, the perception of the Ghostbusters 2016 is that is people hated the movie because it was an all-female cast uh, and, and then but, but having watched other stuff on on, on YouTube by these guys, Red Letter Media, who have spoken out in the past, they looked into it and they looked, pulled out some statistics about it that it was only like 0. 0, 0.08 per, or even less than that, less, less than a, 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 even like a tenth of a percent of people actually left a negative comment like about the, the Ghostbusters trailer, but that's the sort of stuff that gets picked up and amplified. I think that's actually more to do with the fact that Ghostbusters 2016 was horrendous and they needed some hook to, to, to market it on because I think Rick and Morty can, can stand for itself Rick and Morty's very good with the, whole, with the whole sci-fi element though I think there'll be a lot of like having that sort of protective fan base um, I think there'll be a lot of people that are coming in from it and maybe don't get every single reference to every single sci-fi movie that they that they do and I can imagine people get protective over that and then there'll be a hierarchy of people who like Rick and Morty about the people who like it the most and get absolutely everything to yeah, do with it. They're the gatekeepers. They're the, yeah. You're not allowed to like it because we like it more than you. Yeah, basically. Even because I, obviously I do see that in Rick and Morty. Some of the references I get to some sci-fi uh, movies and, and, and history and then maybe others I don't, but there's still loads more going on which just garner humour where I don't need to get every single reference. But I imagine that's an element of where you get this sort of hierarchical um, sort of fan base and people being complete arseholes. It's well casted as well. The guys in it really, how he, how he makes it's really interesting that he, he genuinely drinks so he can get those real, those real burps when he's doing it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I read um, when he's doing it. And obviously I'm a big fan of, I'm a big fan of the dad, the obviously the yeah, loser dad. He is, a, he is such a loser and it's <laughs> so well written. The character is so well written. I mean, there's an episode can't remember, but they basically drop him off at a daycare centre. They've got a daycare centre <laughs> for Jerry's, and it's it's just it's just he's pathetic. He's he's so pathetic. It's uh, it's, it's very funny. So insecure. Yeah, it's it's great. I would I would highly recommend it. But knowing that you will be enjoying a show that um <laughs> that a, a bunch of arseholes will like as well. 
maybe that's where folk listen to the terrace. They'll be like, oh, have you listened to the terrace? <laughs> oh, yeah, but that guy who uh, likes the Columbine massacres listens to it. Yeah, so I might put them off. <laughs> Actually, oh, I'll just uh, a message. If you, if you do like the Columbine Massacres, we don't want you listening to this show. Um, <laughs> switch off now. Unless you're on Patreon. Go fuck yourself and switch off. Unless you're on Patreon and we'll take your $7. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please, you can subscribe to us, but you cannot listen to us. <laughs> Jake Anderson, what are you on the fence about? So, so through this week, I was planning to talk about um, Gogglebox. Um, so the, the Channel 4 programme, because I think it, it used to be a good programme um, like in, in terms of, kind of an insight into the psyche, and then it's just become populated with really thick people, and that was what I was planning to talk about. But uh, I decided to instead talk about beaches. I I don't particularly... I, I, I understand the, if people the, go into the, the physical beach. place, yeah. not the film. No, right. not the film. Where, the, where the, the, the dirt meets the water. So it, it was with all this stuff. In, <laughs> As in, Bill Hicks once said. No, no, yeah. It, it was this stuff in Bournemouth and like these hundreds of thousands of people flocking to the beach and, and nothing to do with coronavirus. I can't imagine anything worse. And so I I understand the appeal when you're on a nice beach and it's quiet and you're walking along. So when I was lucky enough to be living in Australia and, and there's lots of beaches there and, and, you know, it's quiet, it's nice, it's sunny. But that, that I don't understand the appeal of like crowded beaches and lots of people there. There's just... There's just nothing that I would like to do less. But you're, you're on the fence about it, though, Craig. So, so what? He likes beaches in general. What, what, what are the good things about being on a beach? Well, that's what I was saying. Like, if you're in a nice beach, a quiet beach, and it's right. It's, so it has to be a beach without people. Well, yeah, but there can be people. But it's this idea that that like <clears throat> I I enjoy being on the beach. I don't really like getting sand in my shoes. That's a that's a downside if you're wearing your shoes and that. As it is for everyone, and you know, getting some ice cream, nice sunshine. You can see the 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 fish you can watch on the beach for sticks and jellyfish and all of that kind of stuff. Good, fine, I enjoy that. When I mean, I grew up in Ayrshire. We lived lived near lots of beaches and used to go walk along them at night a lot. So I really like the the aesthetic of the beaches, and I think they're they're very pretty places. But it's this idea of like I've been to Troon Beach or whatever or Ayrshire when it's been incredibly busy and. I don't understand that appeal of going to a beach where there are lots of other people, which other people must do on purpose. You must know when you're going to the beach on that sunniest day of the year. Yeah, on a Saturday everyone else afternoon. Is also going. Yeah. And no, so no, it's no. like, wait, what are you getting out of that? It's not pretty anymore. It's, it's full of arseholes. Like, so, oh, so see, it's like, then clean up, see the pictures of the morning after. It's, I, that's uh, something I cannot get into the mindset. If you make a mess, clean it up. Of su- what I don't understand is that you're making them you, you chose to go there because it's nice and it's a nice place to spend the day yeah. so why would you want it to become shit it yeah. like, like you're making it shit for yourself uh, so I totally agree with you obviously that is really frustrating I get what you mean Craig definitely because I, I, I think of it the same way about you can go to the best pub or the best bar in the world but if it's 50 deep uh, at the bar and you and your shoulder shoulder like that then it actually becomes the crappest bar yeah the crappest pub in the world like, so, so you and I have talked about this before we, we met in the very lovely St Kilda in, in <laughs> Melbourne and that was nice because it was it was it was, a, it was a nice day I think it was yeah. like a Thursday afternoon or something to be fair but it was a nice day there were some people there but you still could appreciate the the nice scenery and all that, but as soon as it gets that busy, and as, and it's that stuff with like see taking rubbish, like see I can understand I wouldn't do it myself. People who 
gather up all the rubbish in a bin bag, realise the bin's full, and set a bin next a bag next to the bin. That kind of thing is fine. And so I see when see people take a picture of a bin and it's got like surrounded by bin bags. And I'm like, right, I probably would take yeah. it home with me at that point, but fine, you've you've made a good effort. But it's totally just yeah, leave shit strewn everywhere. It's like I heard the people taking shits in burger boxes and leaving them sitting on the beach and it's like what so what somebody point? somebody took a shit in a burger box. Yes. And it, at, at what point is that a thing that, that comes into your head? She's she, I mean, if you're going to do it, why, why, why? A bur- like, I can understand, you understand the needs to contain a burger in something. If you're going to take a shit, shit into na- nature directly, like if you're really that desperate, find a secluded glade or some ha- tall grass, it's not ideal. Ideally, go and find a toilet. But, you know, if you're really caught short, f- like, take it away from, there's no need to contain it in something <laughs> that's going to stop it from biodegrading in any way. Yeah. <laughs> you're at a beach, just take a shit and bury it. It's <laughs> <laughs> that, that bit in Peep Show where Mark is being held hostage in his bedroom and he really <laughs> So Jeremy slides like a takeaway paper bag <laughs> underneath the door. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so you can have an acid trip in the living room with a girly like, so you have to shit in a box in your bedroom where you're unwell. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to look into the face of my, my son and say like, I, I took a shit in a takeaway bag. Uh, I, I, I'd agree with you, Craig. It's like when you see the pictures, you're right, putting the coronavirus stuff to one side, when you take a look at that, a beach that busy. Imagine pitching up there like 11 o'clock in the morning and just seeing that. You just be like, just want to go back. You just want to go sit in the garden. Absolutely. You just want to go and, and, and for a walk instead of that. I don't know how anyone could be fucking bothered with that. Uh, Tom, what, what's, what are you on the fence about? So I've been watching the, re- I watched the first episode of the reboot of Perry Mason. Oh, yeah. Which is on... Yeah, um, only the first episode at the moment. Um, HBO, Big Tech, Matthew Reese, who is brilliant in The Americans, is good. Like, it looks absolutely incredible. And again, like that sort of 70s New York thing, 30s LA, like all, you know, LA Noir, LA Confidential, mm-hmm. Chinatown, Depression era California, just as LA is getting oil money, just as Hollywood, big Hollywood films are taking off. So it's got like amazing amounts of style points. It does. It does have a lot of cliches in it. I mean, it is like a hard-drinking detective investigator, and there's dames in trouble and all of these. But I like that, and you know, I, I can totally buy into it. But where I, I'm on the fence about, and where I can't quite get my head around is, I mean, I, I slightly touched on it last time it was on, but the idea of the of bleak, gritty remakes of something that wasn't originally dark and gritty. Like, if you want to do an LA noir TV series about a hard but you know, hard-boiled detective solving crimes, do that. But like the original Perry Mason was like a campy comic, and then most like iconically like Raymond Burr's TV series, which was like light-hearted, kind of Sunday mid-afternoon hangover TV. That's that's weird to say that because like I saw the trailers for the the Perry Mason stuff, and I'm like, that's not what I thought Perry Mason was. I've never actually watched yeah. it. I'm now imagining them like trying to do like a, a gritty version of like Inspector Morse or something. Well, that's in this that's, that's it. I mean, it, it's, there's there's a sort of US sub like the original Perry Mason. He's a he's a lawyer. He's not a detective, and it's one of those like weird American subgenres of crime solved by interfering arseholes. Like Quincy is a pathologist who does no pathology and solves crimes. Uh, Murder she wrote 
She's a writer. <laughs> so the, the, one with, uh, the one with Dick Van Dyke. Who, who yeah, uh, Diagnosis Murder. Diagnosis yeah. Murder. Uh, <laughs> <Apple> Ironside <laughs> Police Consultant. Christopher uh, Nolan's... Christopher Nolan's... has got a lot to answer for here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Answer for yeah, yeah. Exactly that's what I was sitting there thinking. This, that's where all this comes from. This need... I mean, the Batman trilogy, I, I, I hope one day we'll go and talk about the Dark Knight Rises for the movie review because that's, that's, I think that's probably the, the most interesting one. Not necessarily the best, but the most interesting one on. That's by the side. But th- then it became everything sort of needed to be gritty and, and sort of like embedded in, in real life. Remember even they, they rebooted, the, I don't know if it came before right enough, but Bomberman, you know, the video game where you just like lay wee traps, you try to do like make Bomberman sort of like gritty. And it's like Bomberman's just a colourful wee guy just dropping off fancy bombs. He's not like this gritty bomb man that doesn't make much sense his name's bomber man <laughs> he's not a gritty he's, he's just a nice bomb man he's not a gritty bomb man he's not a gritty bomb man he's just a bomber man thank you Tony I think, I think through, throughout throughout kind of, throughout kind of like popular culture there, there's always like a push and pull like whatever's happening in the world tends to be reflected in what's happening in the big films or you know big books big whatever it is big music at the time and there's always a reaction to what's gone before it so you've got like 60s hippie culture uh, which had like such an influence on, on and uh, everything was quite lighthearted and about love and about hope and all the and then you look at what happened in the 70s as a reaction to that with The Godfather and Chinatown and, and New Hollywood and things like that there was a like we're going to make it realistic we're going to make it what people really because what we aspired to in the 60s didn't happen and we all got shat on and it, so that kind of fell away and then in the 80s you get like big action films coming in which was and that was all about you know we're making money again everyone and I think at the time that the sort of turn of the turn of the millennium, it was pretty good. Everyone had it pretty good. People thought that you know we were at the end in the Western world. We were at the end of there being massive wars and and people were going to have to lock down for three months. And there's no kind of concept that things were going to get bad again. So you can have the sort of gritty, stern things that are showing it. I just feel at the moment like I, I love a gritty film. I love I love a, something that's well done. I love something that's well put together. But I felt like I was sort of duped into watching it because I don't. But the the, the films that have there's been so many good examples recently of things that have been done well because they've been made lighter. Like the, in the in the various Avengers films, like they, they when Takahiro took on Thor and just lightened it put a bit of humour in it. When they did Guardians of the Galaxy, it, it, it gave it a whole new... It. So it doesn't need to be subtle. It just, just lighten it a wee bit because otherwise you're, you're going to get... I mean, the, the show might get good and it does look pretty and that's why I'm kind of on, on the fence about it. Uh, but it's the sort of idea that at the moment what we need is more stories of like child kidnappings and disemboweled prostitutes. and Because we are going to get to the stage where you, you're like, Oh, we're in the gritty reboot reboot of Jonathan Creek with Jason Statham. (laughs) (laughs) Give me old, campy 60s Batman at the moment. Like you're saying, you know, like Craig was saying earlier on, give me something that's just like a bit of light relief. Someone that does light relief really well without it being dumbed down. I'm trying to imagine them making uh, Alan Davis's windmill like more... (laughs) Like yeah, he'll live on. He'll live on like a houseboat in like the rough part of London. The, the program, <laughs> John, Jonathan Creek, like stopped being not stopped being good. It's still good, but when he moved out the windmill and moved in with the wife, she's a terrible character. Um, I don't know if you've boy. Well, I love Jonathan Creek, but um, the, as soon as he met his his wife and he moved in with her, like I feel like they they tried to turn it into like a more like a 
one foot in the grave style silly comedy, which I think the, mm-hmm. the same guy wrote them both. But yeah, it's uh, they, they need to get Sheridan Smith back and get the wife punted. Well, there we go. If, uh, if the producer Jonathan Creek are listening, <laughs> hey, Tony Anderson, what about yourself? Um, well, I'm continuing the sort of comedy sitcom route theme for me today, and I'm on the fence about what we do in the shadows, which is another mockumentary uh, addition to our lives. Uh, it's a sort of it's brought about by a movie that was made, uh, I think maybe about seven, eight years ago that the movie came out and it was written by Jermaine Clement, who, and I forget his partner, but people might know him from... Um, which Flight of the Concords. Yeah, Flight of the Concords, which is something that I enjoyed quite a lot as a, as a, as a, as a sort of younger man. Um, when I say I'm on the fence, I did, I, do really, I did really enjoy it and I feel like I'm getting to that age now where I sort of make excuses for absolutely everything and I'm turning into quite a lot of people on our podcast as well that I just like absolutely everything. Um, but um, I, it's, it's, I just think that there's set pieces. It's three vampires um, sort of in New York in modern life uh, dealing with responsibilities that you have in everyday life. So as you can imagine, that allows for a lot of really good set pieces and there's sort of like a lot of humor in there they have sort of their different types of vampires so one sort of like an energy vampire so he doesn't go about sort of biting people and sucking them sucking their blood he gets his powers through just boring people to death and so he just comes around and there's sort of like some humor to be derived in there it's got some incredible writers i mean you were just talking about and i'm going to pronounce this completely wrong take Taika Watiti, um, who obviously directed some really big movies and Jojo Rabbit recently. He's actually one of the writers in this, as is Jermaine Clement, but they're not actually, Jermaine Clement isn't actually in it. It's uh, Kevan Novak, who I think was in Four Lions. Oh, I think he was Phone Jacker, wasn't he? Phone Jacker. He plays one of the vampires. Uh, I mean, a, a house favourite, I'm sure loads of people enjoy. Matt Berry's also in it, and he's got his voice with them. They've not taking that away from him uh, and um, someone who I think actually steals the show is really impressive is Natasia Dimitru again pronunciation might be wrong but uh, she plays a female vampire in it and she her, her sort of wit and charm and it's really really good uh, I, as I said I do enjoy it the set pieces are really good there's a lot of humor to be derived from three vampires just wandering the streets in New York and doing day-to-day chores but it's got 20 episodes so it's like 10 episodes a season, I reckon that could be cut in half. I think it, dra- get, it drags out a bit at points and it starts to get a bit boring and a bit forced. So I think there is definitely room for the show and it's and it's enjoyable, but um, I think they're just it's getting dragged out a bit too much, as I said. Has I really liked it. I, I, I really, I did really, I, I really liked it. I, I totally buy your point. I think it's that sort of curse of having to do, I think it's like a, a, a New Zealand American it's FX that do it yeah yeah it's FX so yeah. it, um, it's that kind of curse of if you get a series I mean I'm kind of surprised they didn't have to do 24 episodes um, mm. or 20, you know because you've got to fill schedules with, with it so it would have been it is really good and I totally agree with Natasha Dimitri there, there's a brilliant line in it and it seems like she, she does a lot of stuff off the cuff where she just calls she, um, Matt Berry's character is talking about him uh, having his degree and she just says and it's not going to be funny when I say it but it's very funny when she says it she says oh it's okay then Dr. Arsehole and it's just <laughs> so cutting and it seems like it was done off the cuff and it wasn't scripted that it's very very good but it's 
and I do, I really enjoyed it. I think the, the writing's really good. The writing's really tight. Mm-hmm. I do totally agree that even making it eight episodes, even making it like cutting a wee bit, because it, there are some, because, and because, because on iPlayer, they've dumped them all at once. You can kind yeah. of binge watch them and they're only 20 minutes long, 25 minutes long. So you can kind of binge watch them. But if you rewatch them, like I really like the first series, yeah, I, 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 I just watched the first half of the second season the other day and I started to get, I was binging it a bit and I didn't mean to binge it, but it just ends up happening because like you said, 20 minutes. And I did start to, I started to feel like it started to drag at points. Yeah. Which, and, 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 but I, I sort of did, I really enjoyed the first season, definitely. There, there is, in the first season, if you've not seen it, in the first season, the end of the first season is probably one of the best cameos I've ever seen. Several cameos, and you're like, oh, that's a good cameo. Oh, there's an even better one. All right, okay, that's the best cameo I think I've ever seen. In like a when they have, the yeah, when they have the party. Yeah, and then when they, and they also when they have the sort of house party and everyone's sort of coming over, different vampires coming over, and they're inviting virgins over uh, to just have, um, <laughs> and so they set it all up and they decorate the whole house. That's all really good. And yeah, like when they go to the sort of council building and they're just having, sort of complaints and he's standing up just chatting about it. See, there's, as I said, there's lots of set pieces and good humour to be, to be had from it. So I would definitely advise watching it. So I think really, I'm not on the fence about the quality of the show, absolutely not. The writing's great, but it's more about maybe modern life, like you're saying, Tom, where it, things are enforced to have much more episodes than what they need to in that sort of artistic uh, sort of license and responsibility so it starts to slowly drift away but this is definitely worth watching and I think a lot of people would enjoy it Before we move on just uh, one sort of thing I want, uh, that I've just kind of popped into my head that I'm on the fence about and I'd say I'm on the fence is that my entire body has fallen onto one side but I've got a little toe just slightly sticking over the other side a special mention from Graham Linehan who has been kicked off Twitter and the only reason you're slightly still in favour of Graham Linehan and I mean slightly, with italicised so far that the letters are almost sitting horizontally, is that he wrote Father Ted and, and the IT crowd, and Father Ted especially is excellent. He's been kicked off Twitter. Finally, his uh, transphobic rants have caught up with him. But this is the, the reason I'm mentioning him is because he went on to Mumsnet for support. If you remember, he used, he used Mumsnet to try and mobilise uh, a movement against um, uh, Mermaids, the, the charity. That, yeah, the, you were talking about this in a podcast the other week. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is, he went on, this is stuff that I've just seen, I used a wee glance on Twitter there, he went like, this is a woman who wrote this at quarter past four, I don't know if anyone else in here received unsolicited news from Glenner in the past few weeks, but I have. He apologised before I had the opportunity to post about it, blaming quote-unquote loneliness and vermouth, and regrettably I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I now know for a fact that several other women have received pictures of his scabby little cock, usually followed with a half-apology and crap excuse. What's your game here, Graham? Was this it all along? Rotten little man. So there you go, Graham Linehan. You are an absolute embarrassment and your legacy is in the toilet. Ha, 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 ha. Now, let's move on to perhaps the, the most popular part of the show. It is movie review. <laughs> Lovely uh, film Philomena off the back of that. <laughs> absolutely, we absolutely fucked it last week by going for Wild at Heart, which no one other than myself, and I thought it was just all right. I hold my hand up and say I love Wild at Heart. Yeah, <laughs> I, I listened back to it. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> no, listen, we should have been. Doing, we should have been doing it with you, Tom. I mean, I just, <laughs> Duncan Mackay slagging off Roy Keane for being a shite pundit for not death and just like, oh, it's shite, it's shite. Nothing, nothing happens in it. Uh, it's actually. I didn't think it was as bad as they were making out. So you've gone basically. This is if this is like if, if there was a negative of David Lynch. 
this is perhaps the movie he might make, uh, because this is an absolutely lovely little movie, very charming and wholesome. It is Philomena, uh, directed in two thousand, directed uh, by Stephen Fears in 2013. It follows a woman, uh, wonderfully, wonderfully played by Judy Dench, uh, who teams up with a journalist played by Alan Partridge, uh, to go on a quest to find the son she was forced to go up for adoption 50 years ago. This movie was nominated by Craig Anderson. Craig, why do you suggest Philomena? Um, well, well, lockdown worked my mind in the sense that um, just bef- apparently just before lockdown started, I went to see Greed at the cinema, which was the Alan... Uh, I was calling him Alan Partridge. He's really. Steve no, he's fine. He is. He is. <laughs> I was going to have my notes. He plays Alan Partridge. He can only play... Steve Coogan can only play one character. Um, but, but Steve Coogan, um, it, it doesn't quite in, in, in Greed. And so I thought we could watch that. And then I realised that actually it was February I went to see it at the pictures and not like the middle of 2019 <laughs> which is what I thought in my head it was um, and so it's not it's not really out on anything for us to easily watch it so then I thought well I'll we'll pick another Steve Coogan film that I liked um, when I watched it before um, it's probably got less I think Greed would have been a good one because it would have been I think it would have been interesting to see how people took it because I quite enjoyed it but it was also quite a strange film um, Philomena I was pretty sure everyone would, would think was good but I still think it's probably especially for the performance of Judy Dench, yeah. something that we can talk about. Yeah, d- d- definitely. So the, the movie starts with uh, Judy Dench going to going to church on, around, it's not around Christmas time, no, she just goes to church in the evening and she's, uh, she's cheerful, she's been carrying around the secret for 50 years and it was as a young girl, she uh, had sex with a boy at a fairground got pregnant and her father in shame sent her to a convent to for these nuns to basically took the child off her. Uh, she worked in the wash house, got to see her boy for one hour a day and then the, the child was suddenly and mysteriously taken uh, and put into adoption by, by a family. And Philomena has carried this for 50 years. She hasn't even told her daughter about it. But when it all comes out, her uh, daughter, who's working as a, as a waitress at a, an event, bumps into Martin Sixsmith, played by Alan Partridge, who puts her in touch with her mum, and that's where the, the, the movie kicks on here. I suppose, what do you make of the performances from the two central characters? I mean, we've already spoken very highly of Judy Denchi's performance. What do you guys make of it? I think it's really interesting that they both work. Like, like we've all said, like Steve Coogan plays Steve Coogan, but he's always watchable. Like Steve Coogan yeah. plays, what, you know, Steve Coogan or Alan Partridge, whether it's 24-hour party people or, or Night at the Museum, whatever he's doing. And you, you are always aware that you're watching Steve Coogan and you're kind of, I like Steve Coogan, so I'm okay with watching that. Whereas Judy Dedge is like a national treasure and one of the greatest actresses, actors of all time, regardless of gender. But you forget you're watching her. You forget you're watching Judy Dench. She totally becomes the part. Yeah, she's brought... It's it's interesting. When I think of Judy Judy Dench, obviously, everything I've seen her in is is brilliant. You know, she's very good. This this especially, but the first time I saw Judy Dench was in As Time Goes By, which I'm sure used to be (laughs) he would show on like a Sunday night and I remember watching it as a wee boy and thinking this is absolutely terrible so even though I know Judy Dench is a brilliant actor 
part of me, that this little kernel in my head thing, ah, but she did this time goes by with Jeffrey Palmer and it was shite. So, <laughs> she is good. She totally never forgive her. <laughs> never, forgive, never forgive, never forget. You're absolutely right, Tom. That's a good point that, that she does become the, the, the character. All the... And she's Irish as well. Like she, 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 she doesn't like totally nail the act, but you'd never... You're always pulled in, but and it's like important. Probably, I don't know if we've said already. It's a true story. The whole thing's yeah. a true story. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Philomena Lee, who she plays, um, is still alive and kicking, uh, and um, it sort of turns into this sort of road movie where her Philomena Lee and Martin Sixsmith. Uh, and Martin Sismith has just lost his job as a government advisor, spin doctor. He's decided he's going to go back to journalism and write a book. Uh, ultimately, he did write a book. Russian uh, history. Well, I've read that book, and it's the best <laughs> book on Russian history you'll ever read. A Thousand Year Chronicle of the Wild East. It is actually, even for the, for if you've got only a passing interest in Russian history, highly worth reading A Thousand Year Chronicle of the Wild East. But anyway, um, yeah, so he's decided he's going to write this book on, on Russian history. He's going to uh, get back into journalism. He doesn't want to do a human interest story because, they're, you know, they're, they're boring and, and nobody nobody takes him seriously but he starts to feel sorry for her story as he starts to get involved in it as he starts to see what happened as he starts to see there was this history of uh, um, vulnerable women that were taken in by the convent basically effectively made to work as as slaves Slaves, and their children were sold to the highest bidder, uh, usually to the states, as uh, and as it turns out, you know that that's the way the the story goes. And the two of them kind of go off and investigate, you know, where is his his whereabouts and try and track down her son. The the it's just it's strange because the two of them are very different. Like I say, one of them is just playing himself and he's kind of a charismatic character she is absolutely Philomena yeah but how does he describe her he says like she's a a cross between like the daily if you read the Daily Mail Reader's Digest and and something else like all rolled into one yeah she's lovely she's she's lovely and she's just she goes to swear and then says (laughs) shiny shoes I don't give a shiny shoes about the the, the interaction there's a lovely scene in it but the first, the first thing, there are a couple of moments, and it's a very sweet movie, and a couple of very funny moments. I think particularly the, the first time they meet each other, she talks about getting a new titanium hip because it won't rust. And he says, oh, we put a bit of oil in there like the Tin Man. Yeah. She doesn't know how, what to say. He says, no, I'm joking. She starts laughing. And he says, my mother had a, a, has got rheumatoid, severe rheumatoid arthritis of the knees. And she bursts out laughing at that. <laughs> and their relationship throughout it was, was really sweet. There's a bit in the car. I think he offers him tunes. And he says to him, oh, you, you name it, I'll hum it. She says, no, no, do you want a tune? Yeah. Uh, I, I thought in the, the car, that the bit that, that got me was uh, she, she says, do you believe in God, Martin? And he says, well, I've always thought that was a difficult question to give a simple answer to <laughs> you. And then she just goes, yes. <laughs> and I thought it's just, it's just perfectly played. The, the thing for me with, with Coogan in this is like, especially at the start, um, I think he does a really good job of like being the audience surrogate. So he's kind of like taking the when he's kind of asking her all these questions about, oh, how could they possibly have done this? And you know, yeah. and it's almost oh. like what you're thinking as a person watching it, like because you, you unless you've experienced that, you don't, you can kind of disbelieve the story that she's telling. And so he's like prying into that, like journalistically, and and it's bringing out the story, and it kind of probably saves them. 20 minutes half an hour of a film by just having that little segment where he asks her 
I think it's really important that Steve Coogan, obviously he'd done the screenplay for this, uh, so obviously, and, and he's one of the producers, so he was like heavily involved. But I think it's really important that they to that it's someone like Steve Coogan that plays that role because I could feel this film could get too uh, bagged down by melodrama quite easily. Uh, and having someone like Steve Coogan there to give uh, to keep on bringing humour back in it to stop it getting bagged down like that and stop it becoming too emotional because obviously it is a highly emotional film. But in real life, as I think we spoke about numerous times, there is always humour attached to situations. Humour is just a constant theme running through day, day life at all times in all scenarios. So I think it's really important. I think he was really importantly casted in a movie like that to make sure that that, that, that was still held tight and not I, just I think one thing that he deserves he deserves a lot of credit for is and he does it in the trip as well like he obviously writes it but he's the straight man mm-hmm. so he, like he sets up all the jokes for Judy Dench which yeah, actually makes yeah. it much funnier um, and it's the same in the trip with, with, with Rob Ryden where he's kind of this slightly taking himself like the, a lot of the, the humour is him taking himself so seriously and you know he's a serious actor he's a serious journalist well, it's, it's funny they reference this film that's how I, that's why I watched it because they reference this film a lot in the trip because yeah. it's like the first time he's done something that or maybe not the first time but it's definitely like his most critically acclaimed piece. Well, I think he got nominated for for an Oscar, not yeah, for yeah. for acting, but for for something else, but for the screenplay or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so they talk about it in the trip quite a lot, which was was why why we watched it the first time. Um, oh, the, the bits the bits for, for me, I I would say like I enjoyed this movie. I thought it was good. I didn't think it was great. There was a bit when they they visit the care home for the first time in in Ireland, and. Uh, Philomena is the, the the nun who who runs the place. Won't have a wants to talk to Philomena, but she won't talk to uh, Martin Sixsmith. So he goes and waits in the lobby, and he sees the is it Sister Hildegard? I think her name yeah. is an old yeah. Sister Hildegard. He sees her, and he's not allowed to go and speak to her. And that's when I was thinking, like, this is really interesting. It's setting up themes about the way we look after old people, the way we believe old people. You know, there's the bits about like there's. Sometimes I think uh, Philomena's patronised quite a lot. She's patronised by like the nuns, patronised by her daughter, patronised by Martin at points. And, and and the scene after that, when they go to the pub and they talk about the, he's talking to the the bar the barman, and they talk about like the the abbey burning down, and he says, "No, it wasn't an abbey burning down. They had a bonfire in the middle of a field." That's when I was thinking, Chris, we're getting into some like um, spotlight uh, sort of territory here, where they're going to they're going to uncover it. And I was really like, "Whoa!" I, I really it felt as though he had uh, Martin Sixsmith had, had stumbled into something that he that was going to really unravel, but then it kind of it didn't pick up the same momentum. And I was a wee bit when they went to America, I was kind of like, ah, right, this kind of isn't uh, the pot boiler I was I was hoping it would be. And I think the, the only reason- thing that kept so the only thing that that kind of kept it as watchable when the, the sort of it was unravelled who, who Anthony the man that he became Michael Hess a very a senior government um, government figure in the Reagan uh, for the Republican Party I was kind of like ah, right, I'm, I'm not quite as, as interested in this but then they went back to Ireland I was like oh this is good this, this has been good again but I think um, I thought the big reason for that I think is obviously because it's based on the true story and it's based on that actual um the, the actual journalist work by Martin Sixsmith because apparently the spotlight thing that you're thinking of actually is what unravels from this in real life. That um, the, the work that he done to help Philomena search for um, our, our son actually opened up a, 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 sorry, a huge can of worms, if you like, He's and had a huge... Yeah, 
had a huge impact on the Catholic Church uh, in Ireland. And there was a lot of uh, people were able to come forward and go looking uh, for their child. And there's still ongoing problems now, apparently, over the, same, over the same situation, all going through that. So that work led to that. So maybe you're right. Maybe there could be a Philomena too. <laughs> where, uh, <laughs> Back in Philomena <laughs> harder. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, this stuff happened around the world as well because um, got a friend in Australia and, and like, they had the lost generation there and her mum was actually like, like essentially a lot of Aboriginal families they would take the kids away and it was like the state doing it because they thought it was for what was best for for the child and stuff because it mm-hmm. was obviously kind of a racism involved this was more of a religious based like um, thing and so, so that was it that's kind of a similar story that happened all over which is kids got taken away from parents who were deemed in some way unfit and there's that that theme so yeah I guess you're right in the sense that as a film it probably would have been better for some big story like that but I guess if they didn't actually uncover the big story it makes it harder to to write into the film and I think one of the things like sometimes this is used as a a, a sort of stick to beat these sort of films with but it is a charming little film yeah like it can't have been a big budget it's 90 minutes long there's not a huge amount I mean there's very few actors in it bar the two leads Uh, you know nobody gets more than a couple of minutes screen time anywhere else and it is sort of a, a, a road movie, really. Um, and I think a lot of credit for, you know, like, like what you're saying, Tony, uh, about it doesn't veer into melodrama. Uh, Stephen Frears has got to take an awful lot of credit because he's very, very good with these character-led, like, you know, High Fidelity, The Grifters, even the one about Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which was a bit... Quiz, hacky. yeah. Yeah, quiz, exactly. The, he, he developed the characters really nicely, and you kind of... It's not even about script, it's you just care about them and the way that he what he could have done at the end and I won't spoil what the, the ultimate ending is once they've gone back to, to Ireland what he could have done is gone for a huge big emotional payoff where you leave the audience in tears and you have a sweeping soundtrack and you know that would have been within the budget and within many directors would have gone for that and he doesn't and he keeps it subtle and he keeps yeah. it a little film and he keeps it like <sighs> the feeling you get from it is is much less forced. And I think with something like this, where it, it, it is a little film and it kind of lives or dies on the performances and the, the story of it, that's quite a skill for a director. The only time, the only time it sort of it veered slightly towards that was a confrontation at the end between Martin and the, the nun when they, they sort of talk about... I can. I, that's the thing. I can understand because he is, is, is like he's a journalist. Uh, like, in fact, just it's, it's what happens is that the, the he uncovers, finds Sister Hildebrand. They return to the, the 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 convent, finds Sister Hildebrand, and he confronts her about what happened to Philomena's boy. I, I and they have a sort of confrontation where she's. They talk about like the, the sins of the flesh, and she has by denies herself all these pleasures for for, for God's work and so on, and he's. Like, as a journalist, he wants to find out the truth. He's angry. He wants to pressure. Whereas Philomena is just like, no, I, I forgive her. And that was the sort of point, that climax, when it sort of veers just slightly into that. But then it's sort of, it's kind of dissolved nicely and it finishes up shortly afterwards when they do go and visit the where uh, Michael slash Anthony was, uh, was buried. And there's a lot of... So at the, the beginning of the film, as I settled down, I had, I had an inclination of what, I'd, I'd know a little bit of what the film was about. But then when I sat down, I just had my little pizza uh, last night. I sat down to watch it 
And then uh, I'm sort of horrified again. I didn't know what I'd let myself in for where there was like sort of like intense childbirth where they think the child's going to die. Uh, and like the convent with all the nuns and the way it was filmed and the music, I was like, it almost started like a like a horror movie um, <laughs> at the start with like the intense screaming. I was like, all oh, right, I hadn't um, sort of prepared myself for this. Uh, and I think another point is that that only lasted for maybe 50 minutes and that could have probably been dragged on a whole of a lot long. This film, I think it does itself justice with the fact that it really does have the ability to go on for much, much longer and it, and it doesn't, and I think that is I think that's to its credit, as I think we've been we've been talking about already. In terms of the themes and the messages in the movie, I mean, it's absolutely littered with it. Um, I found it's just there was a constant theme of sort of tension in grey areas in every part of of the movie. It's sort of like constantly coming through, and um, even uh, in Judy Dench's character, Philomena, she is sort of really direct at points in the movie, and. Uh, even though she's patronized, she comes across as relatively smart and sort of like street smart. She doesn't take nonsense. She doesn't suffer fools gladly at points, but at the same time, she can't see, she never wants to blame the church. It's sort of that indoctrinated uh, idea that the, the church, she was constantly making excuses for the church and how it wasn't their yeah. fault. Uh, but she would never, in every other scene, whenever she's talking about, she would never ever do that. She's really direct. She confronts um, sort of Steve Coogan for being rude and things like that. So she's very direct. She isn't scared to put her point of view across. Uh, but then she would never, ever blame the, uh, blame the church for anything. Um, so I was looking at reading other parts of it. Um, sort of the role of journalism in the film and the fact that they paid for the trip to go and then the, the editor didn't seem to mind if she didn't <laughs> want to... Uh, yeah. the, she didn't seem to mind uh, if she didn't want if Philomena didn't want to do it anymore because they'd paid for the trip and she'd basically signed up for this. Uh, An open I, ticket back. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also the, there's the other tension between, yes, the, the child's been taken away, but Philomena's uh, constantly commenting on how she could never have given him this life as she learns more and more about it. And then there's that tension between, yeah, it was horrible what happened to him, but then he went on to have like a really successful life, even though at the same time then another tension comes in, he had that successful life, but he wasn't able to live the life that he wanted to because he had to hide the fact that he was, that he was gay for, for, for his work uh, and he wasn't able to live uh, sort of the free life that, that you would imagine anybody would, would, want to, would want to play. So I thought that just constantly... The, the tensions between each section and every member of the film and the amount of grey areas in it, I just thought were, were really interesting. You can you could never sort of ignore them, if you like. I think it's the thing with with, um, with Philomena as well, is that like, as it goes on, she's going to be a nurse and that she's kind of spent her whole life caring for people. And yet, yeah, as you say, it's that, that sense that everything about her is like she... She surprises you at every turn, I think, mm-hmm. as a character. So it's like when, they, when she gets told that he's gay... And it's almost like, like she hasn't. It, it seems as if she hasn't taken it in, like because she's like talking about the pictures, and then they kind of um, ask. She asks the the woman if he's if he had children, and she's like, no, she just told you he was gay. And he's like, oh, yeah, I know that kind of thing. And it was almost like, you know, because they're all they're, they're almost tiptoeing around it a little bit because. She's an old woman, and they yeah. think she might She's be Irish Catholic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's then, a very good then, scene but, just after that as well when she says, "Oh, were you his girlfriend?" And she's like, "No, no, no. He, he was actually gay." And then in the next scene, she says something like, "Oh, the woman in his office was she his beard?" We're like, "That's that's a thing. That's what they call them now." <laughs> <laughs> 
but but and it's like even like the like the there's like a couple of like not not like very mild sexual references and she kind of gets all that as well and and it's almost like you you kind of expect that like she's been you paint the picture of the character as someone who's going to be offended by all this and then and then it's it's not true in any way and I like that little it was probably only a kind of 10 minute period in the middle of the film that it really happened but that little bit where you actually realise because I think it, it pads out the character a bit yeah well it's, 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 it, as, as always with this sort of with those types of people like Philomena we always think that they don't I mean we're classic I mean younger people older people we all think that they don't get it and they, they've never experienced any of these things but they've been through just as many different things as you they might have a different angle of it but they certainly understand what what it is and they, they've they've had sex before and they've heard people talk about it even if you don't think they have <laughs> i liked um the, the really powerful bit in it was the um when she, she said she didn't want to be like him uh why um, when they were having the argument uh, about uh, her forgiving um the covenant and giving and, and and letting the the nun the nun off the hook if you like uh, and she tells them that uh, I, why would i want I, I would never want to be like you um, you're you're angry all the time. It looks exhausting, and uh, I think, and I actually think that that's maybe quite a that put a mirror up for me, and probably about what quite a lot of older people uh, of faith that we sort of criticise quite a lot, and we I think it's quite cool to sort of slag off religion and slag off faith uh, and look at the this the sort of major potholes in it all, um, but ultimately uh, but we get ourselves really worked up and angry about it i mean you only have to look at social media all the time everyone's angry everyone's arguing and i suppose for older people they must they must feel like that a lot of the time that i've, I've got faith and you might think it's silly but i'm a, i'm not red all the time and i don't i'm probably not going to go into an early grave due to anger because i'm at 42 just because i'm furious all the time and proving everyone wrong all the time that's good. So it sounds like this. This is good. This was a, I'd say, a lovely little movie, and I, I, I well, certainly other than probably Tom, certainly and slightly myself, a, a big, a, a, an improvement on on last week's offering. I think we're all fairly unanimous about it. Yeah, I, I, yep. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. it. Made me feel Highly good. Recommended. Um, and I had, as I said, lots of messages. It's not what I it wasn't what I expected at the time, but uh, yeah, I thought it was lovely. Excellent. Next week, a human centipede too. Now we're going to finish up with uh, our, just very quickly. What have you been listening to recently, Tom? What you play the guitar? You've got a beard, and you talk about bands that I've never heard of. So we might as well just get you out of the way first. <laughs> okay, uh, Jerry Beth's album to love uh, to love is to live. Uh, Savages lead singer. Uh, Savages have got a couple of albums out. Uh, they're French English. Uh, band they're very very good she's released her first solo album a couple of weeks ago uh, first of all she looks fucking cool she looks like sort of greaser queen like a leader yeah, and is, savages really. savages always look like a, a gang and i like bands that look like gangs she looks like she'd cut you up and she, she like she sings lyrics like there's a line in in this album uh, which has the word osmosis in it and she says it in a really heavily french accent like osmosis so that's cool i like it a lot um but she's released a solo album. It's a collaboration largely with uh, Atticus Ross, who is now a full-time Nine Inch Nail and worked on the soundtracks to The Social Network, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Watchmen uh, TV series. So if you like that kind of stuff, that's what yeah, kind of a halfway house between her sort of post-punk stuff and that. Um, 
if you, I mean, I just very briefly took down some notes of the sort of things that it sounds like a bit like there's a bit of killing joke in it. Ariel, Kate Bush, Late Bowie, The Knife, even like some of the uh, Kanye West's Jesus stuff. It's it's very sparse. It's very cold. It's it's quite pretentious, but it's French, so it's cool pretentious. <laughs> and there is a spoken words track with Killian Murphy. So it's that's kind of the world you're getting into. But it's fucking cool. And there are... It, for for such a weird album, the way that like people like The Knife did this sort of weird electro stuff that was very, very, very strange, but there was just full of crack and pop tunes on it. She's got that as well. So yeah, Jenny Beth's To Love Is To Live, highly recommended. Craig Anderson. Um, to go old, as I always tend to do, it says from 2002, it's uh, The Streets' original pirate material. Oh, I mean, what that quite brilliant, a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I've actually just bought tickets. They're playing a um, drive-in gig at the um, Royal Highland Centre at the start of August, um, which we decided would be um, an opportunity to go and do something a bit different. So actually, I, I can't imagine it, it, they're, they're necessarily the ideal band for that type of thing, but um, or the ideal act. But um, nonetheless, I've never never seen them live, so I thought it was still worth doing. But that, that kind of got me listening to it a little bit. Again, um, and, and I, yeah, I just really like it. I got into them first through like a grand don't come for free, but then I bought this and, and a grand don't come for free is like a, a full concept album. So kind of the, the, the thread running through the whole thing. Whereas I think this is like lots of like mini dramas, like every individual song is like, it's, it's got the better story. songs. A grand don't come for free. I think is a better album, but yeah. to listen to as a whole. Whereas this I mean the, like, uh, has it come to this and turn the page Fuck me, yeah. Turn the, the Page is, is, I think that's his best song, Turn the Page. I mean, that all that whole stuff about, like, Roman gladiators and yeah. biblical and, like, Walls of Fire. And uh, I remember I used to, to, to rap, rap, rap the, the, whole, the whole thing. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's an absolutely phenomenal album. And still, so the only bit in it that's aged, the only bit in it that's aged is when he's, he's, he's doing You Won't Find This in Alta Vista, cult classic, not bestseller. And of course, Alta Vista is now a defunct uh, search engine. On, on the very last um, track, he talks about stay positive, and, he, and he's um, he's telling like if you've not gone through this, like or, or if someone is, then tell them to listen to this tape as well. Yeah, and, like there's not been a tape for <laughs> at this point, but yeah, no, it, it, it does remain. And, and the thing for me is like on like so it, it's kind of all about life and you know growing up and being a young person and the kind of life you live at that point. And it wasn't a life I lived. The, the life that he's talking about isn't any. It's not the lifestyle I had. Unlike something you, like you weren't a, a man who uh, with uh, t- t- two two Henrys and a bit of Benson. That wasn't not not, not very often. <laughs> but, but unlike something like whatever people say, I'm that's what I'm not. Which is maybe in the same genre of that type of album where I could mm. identify a lot more yeah. personally with some of the things that that were in that. Mm. Um, but with, despite that, for this album, like I still, you really feel drawn into it, um, and you feel I, I really like um, the song, the irony of it all, when it's talking about. Um, that's the only one I don't like, and I don't think like that's it. A wee bit too, like too. It is on the nose, yeah. But I just think I think it's probably it actually really reflects like current discourse, like on not on even that topic, but like you've got Generally, like the old, that's, that's maybe a fair point where you've got the old gammon kind of saying, oh, yeah, and, it, and it's like an old drunk guy, and I think it, I think like yeah, you're right, it's on the nose, but it also is is very um, prescient. I think yeah, so I, I I do always like that track. Um, and, and I really like Sharp Darts, even though it's like a really short song. It's like kind of in the, the style of the, the punk music that I quite like. So it's just there and over very quickly. Um, 
So Actually, yeah, it's yeah. Great album. Still, still, still very important. Still, still very important. And I don't think after those first two albums, you know, I, I really liked the streets. Well, I liked the streets. Uh, I, I thought the first two albums were excellent, but everything after that was just oh, geez. Oh, I've never even. I've I've listened to the third one, and I don't think I've listened to any of the ones after. There's a couple of good tracks on the third one, but um, yeah, beyond that, I've not. It's just a, the sound of a man who has done far too much cocaine, and it's just, <laughs> it sounds shrill, and it's just I, I didn't, didn't not a pleasant experience. The chads uh, pull it. Yeah. Um, oh, to, uh, sorry, Tony. I was I was going to go first. Uh, no, please go, go, please go for it. Now thirty three. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll I'll tell you why it's like I I, I started listening, <laughs> I started listening to Enya right and I listened to an Enya song called Anywhere Is and it's a great song right and I remember where I first heard Anywhere Is by Enya and it was a Now Thirty Three now the first the first thing the first compilation I ever heard was Now Thirty Two that was released in nineteen ninety five but Now Thirty Three released in 1996, March 1996. So here's the track listing on it. Oh, that's exactly what I'm looking at going before. It had Don't Look Back in Anger by Oasis, Spaceman by Babylon Zoo, Going Out by Supergrass, Disco 2000, um, One by One by Cher, uh, 7475 by Connells. I really like that song. I, I, I hear it on the radio quite a lot and then it comes, it comes on and you're like, oh. That's a nice song. Yeah. Um, but it's also got Blur, Paul Weller, Cast, all I Need is a Miracle 96 by Mike and the Mechanics. Fun, Fun, Fun by Status Quo and the Beach Boys. It's got Terravision, Lush, The Leveler. It's got Street Spirit by Rayhead. It's got Oasis. It's got two Oasis songs in it. One's um, uh, Live Forever, which was released uh, two years prior. But then it's also got on the, the, the second disc, I Just Want to Make Love to You by Etta James. It's got Give Me a Little More Time by Gabriel. I got Five on It by The Loonies. Um, Passion by Gat Decor. You know, you did Beautiful Life, Ace of Base, Not So Manic Now by Dubstar, He's in the Phone, San Etienne, Whole Lot of Love by Goldberg, and it finishes, it finishes with I Wanna Be a Hippie by Technohead. <sighs> Reminds me of a family trip to Drum the Drocket in, uh, up near, up next to Loch Lomond. And it's incredible, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like one of those fucking stupid old farts that say oh, there's no good music released these days. And I'm sure there is loads of good music released these days. You just have to be a bit more savvier as to, to where you go uh, and find it. But as a, I'm going to use the word, as a time capsule to what was going on in popular British music at that time, then now 33 is where it's at. I, I well, let you listen to that going to time capsule in Glasgow and going to sort of <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing with those new albums like, and I don't think it's the case now is they were, they were quite eclectic like because um, yeah. I remember the, the first one of the first ones I bought uh, the first track I think was uh, the Everyone's Free to Wear Sunscreen the Baz Luhrmann yeah. one and like I can't imagine a track like that making it on to or, or indeed the no, Technohead one used to, the, the, I think the, the way it worked was they'd have two two discs and I think well, the first disc would be sort of more uh, guitar based music the second one sort of more more dancey pop orientated and I don't know if that is just that this is just a, the decline of guitar music of popular guitar music uh, that there's no real guitar bands on it these days but I, th- I think you're right it just seems to I, I, I see I think you're right I don't know if you're right or not it's just no I was going to say let's look up what the, the um, most recent one is <laughs> I think um, a lot of it's chart, it's chart led right it's, it's like the yeah, stuff absolutely. that's on the radio at the moment so more 
there's all there, there's sort of been a at the, and at the time in 1996, you know, it wasn't weird to have uh, you know a, a band on a tiny little indie label crashing into the top ten. So they completely justify their place on a big compilation alongside you know your Simply Reds and your Gabrielles. But now you just don't you don't tend to have that. You don't tend to aside from like the heavy hitters, you get the indie labels have stopped even releasing singles in many cases. Mm. You need, you know, we've got a situation, you've got situations where you can have one artist having, was it nine of the top 10 or 11 of the top 20, yeah, something like that. So the charts are kind of skewed. Yeah, I'm sure that was when Ed Sheeran's uh, The Divide album came out. There was like, was it some like 13 songs at the yeah. top 20 mm. were Ed Sheeran songs and that was based in streams. And yeah. I, I don't know, I mean, I, like, I, I Obviously, things are changing. I, I, I do sound like a fucking old, but an old bastard. But it's like when you used to buy a single. Do you remember you'd go like when Oasis released all the singles on Creation Records? When you would go and buy an Oasis single, and I'm thinking of the stuff like uh, "Some Might Say," for instance, and um, "Don't Look Back in Anger." Those singles, it was like you weren't just getting like the single. The other songs were were worth the price that like, worth yeah, the yeah, yeah. Own. The B sides and stuff. I yeah. like Aquarius, Aquarius. Was it was yeah. a side to some might say you'd like underneath the sky in the cover of Come On Feel the Noise, um, the, the, the brilliant songs. And I felt as well if you to, to single to actually own the single, that is you partaking money, that is you owning it, that counts towards it. But but nobody buys that anymore. So streaming, um, and you're seeing like I'm sure like Tom, you might might need to correct me here, but was it earlier in the year, tail end of last year, Justin Bieber got his knuckles wrapped for encouraging his fans. To, to, to keep streaming his songs, basically set up playlists, play overnight, play on silent, just so Spotify and Apple Music, it's getting the counts up, so which pushes him higher up the charts. There was someone, uh, there was a, an indie band a couple of years ago released, you know, they put a single out and as a promo, they did like six seconds of silence. Both pick. Yes. And they they they, uh, they did six seconds of silence, and they were just saying to fans, you know, stream this over and over again because we get paid. Yeah. So you get hundreds of thousands of played of this six seconds of silence. But yet, it's so easy to game that system. You know, I mean, that's the whole point. That wasn't that was. I mean, Wolfpecker, Wolfpecker, are amazing. You know, like in terms of like artists and stuff. But that whole thing was to make a point as to how yeah. ridiculous Spotify. That it might it may, it may not have been them. It may have been someone else. That, that uh, there was somebody else that that had done it as. A way like a an American a Texas band, I want to say, but I, yeah. But the point is, you can you can game this system, and the charts are not worth not, the way that it's done at the moment. I mean, the American charts for a long time have been skewed by how many times it's played on the radio as well as how many times it's bought. But like you were saying, it used to be I'm taking an active part in going out and buying something. I'm just looking at the track listing of the current yeah. one, and it's a lot of like dance pop stuff, which is obviously the very much in genre. Um, there is a bit of grime on it, and then the very the last track is something I'm not familiar with, and I won't be making myself familiar with, which is a uh, something called "Thank You Baked Potato" by Matt Lucas. That was, that was very funny, actually. That's it. Shooting stars. Yeah, that's from Shooting from Stars. Shooting Stars? Oh, okay, yeah, I'll go but, back but, and watch but, it but in that made, case. I was thinking but, it was some new stuff he'd put out. But, but he's not, but he's repeated it. He's, he's, he's been, okay, playing, it. He's been it playing it during lockdown to raise money for charity and getting sort of various sort of pop stars and celebrities to come and do the duet, duet with them and school kids have been doing it, socially distancing at school. It is relatively 
sweet if you just okay. ignore as Matt Lucas says if you ignore Little Britain I was going to say fair play him David Walliams coming and saying oh yeah we're really sorry for, for, for blacking up but remember like uh, we're backing up you know it's been withdrawn on Netflix it's very easy to say that after the fact and after the fact that you've made millions and millions of pounds <laughs> yeah. 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 The fact of it. and then like in 2011 and Come Fly With Me which I am ashamed to say I have watched tens and tens of times so I'm very familiar with it the character Matt Lucas played Precious and it was like a, a stereotype Blacktop is a lazy black woman who ran a coffee kiosk that would do anything to avoid having to, to, to do any work Fuck off. Don't listen to Baked Potatoes song. That was my two cents. <laughs> well, David Williams' children's books are apparently very good. Um, so, yeah. Uh, there was that actually, because um, it came on and I couldn't be bothered changing the channel, one of his kids' books had been made into a TV programme, which was on the um, BBC over Christmas. It was like about a granny who was a burglar. Yeah. It was actually quite, it was quite well, it was quite well done, but I, um, it seemed quite a good story. I think a lot of people are jealous to Dave Wilde because a lot of comedy celebrities try try their hand at sort of uh, children's books and think it's an easy way to make a buck, I think. Uh, but I think mean, fail miserably. Gervais done one as well back in the day. Animals. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, and it wasn't overly successful, but Williams is sort of now becoming sort of more successful for his children's authorship than he has oh. anything else yeah, here's a quiz question for you David Williams starred in two episodes of an early 2000s sitcom written starring by David Bedil. can you <laughs> name that sitcom <laughs> it's not the Bedil syndrome is it 10 points goes to Craig yes. Anderson yes well done uh, to finish up Tony what, uh, what's your what's your listening recommendation well, I took uh, sort of the theme that I've been hearing. I listened to a few of your uh, of the recent podcasts. Uh, oh, the one and sorry, the rabbit hole one from Andy Harrow is very good. See that? So I listened to that last week. That's um, so I was listening like so, and it was the landfill indie that we've been uh, that was getting commented on a lot. Uh, being problematic and good, and people not liking it. So I thought I would go for sort of my most loved. So, uh, indie album that I know similar to like Joel's Pigeon Detectives one, except I won't sit here and sort of lie to your face and call it a masterpiece. But it's an album that I loved greatly uh, as a boy, and that was uh, Maximo Park, uh, Our Earthly Pleasures. <laughs> you did, uh, of course, it was. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, as I said, like obviously a certain trigger was uh, Maxwell Park's first album uh, and it was similar uh, sort of things around the time, the new wave style thing. So it was similar to like block party and stuff, but it was like really heavy treble guitars. Uh, there was some interesting tracks on it uh, and they didn't really, similar to these other bands, they didn't really capitalize on that. And then when it got to their sort of second uh, albums, they went really, really quite safe. Uh, it was sounding much more clean. It sounded much more overly produced, uh, but I enjoyed that. Uh, I'll have you know. Uh, and so this album, uh, they've got a couple of tracks. There, so it kicks off really, really fast uh, with Girls Who Play Guitars and Our Velocity. And again, I think they were probably better live than they ever would be on the album. Uh, Our Velocity is sort of an interesting track where it sounds like it might be like maybe two or three songs sort of merged together, which I thought was quite clever at the time. Not so clever now looking back on it, but uh, uh, but then it sort of goes very much into sort of Paul Smith, who's the lead singer, uh, sort of Geordie. Uh, it's sort of like quite desperate love songs, 
uh, and they're sort of like a lot of sort of like powerful rock ballads. His voice is is sort of outstanding, and uh, and I, as a really young guy, I, I loved my pop music, man. I, I had a big sister who was four years older than me, so like the soundtrack in my house was more um, sort of your A ones, your nine one ones, your Backstreet Boys, Boyzone, and Westlife and things like that. So I've got a soft spot for that sort of that sort of power ballad, if you like. Um, and it wasn't until I sort of became a, a sort of adult and uh, pushed my sister was gone and I started sort of trying to make my own way in music that I sort of got more into sort of electronic and, and rock and roll. But uh, so this sort of feeds into that for me. There's a sort of powerful, uh, like big hitting numbers. Uh, and and he's, sort of got, he's got such a beautiful voice and I can sing along for the entire album, even though the lyrics are quite sad. Uh, there is one interesting track that maybe goes against sort of what the rest of the theme of it is, and that's called A Fortnight's Time, uh, which I'm not entirely sure what it's about, but it's much more playful. It's not about losing a girl or falling out of love with them, but more try to get one. But it sounds like she might be really, really, really young because um, like, the lyrics are um, five times five equals 25. Don't you know your timetables by now? Oh, and the, the, the songs about try to get with this girl. And I was a bit like, that's a bit, maybe a bit weird, but... Maybe, maybe. she's just not good at the math, Tony. Yeah, maybe, ultimately, yeah. yeah. Um, so maybe that might sort of be more interesting, have a bit of uh, depth to it. Imagine that, Tony, you passed up the love of your life just because she was shite at arithmetic. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so as I said, I don't think this isn't a, a classic album. Some people would go against and think that they missed a trick and didn't push on after the first album and so it continued to be more experimental. But for me, I absolutely adored it and can sing every single word to every single song. I've not listened to it, but um, Paul Smith put out some solo stuff recently, I think. Really? Um, yeah. Um, as I say, you always know because when you're on a band's Wikipedia page and the, the, they've got the wee thing in the singles list, and they all start off in blue because you can click on them because <laughs> there's more information. And then as it gets yeah. further along, they're in black. There's like there's not yeah. even a link for this song. <laughs> um, at least their albums have all got links, so that's the thing. But they've got um, six albums, apparently. I've only ever yeah. listened to the first two. I've listened to maybe three three of them, but yeah, the first two. But yeah, Arathy Pleasures, I just, it was an album that I loved at the time, and I don't expect everyone to love it. But uh, if you like a sort of rock ballad, uh, with sort of sad lyrics, well, come on up, you'll enjoy yourself. You know, so I just uh, following on from that is like, see when Andy Harrell was talking about his um, his like pop punk days or his, his emo days. I was thinking album to listen to. I was thinking about maybe go back and listen to Travis the Man Who because remember yeah. at one point that that was nineteen ninety nine, so about yeah. twenty years ago, you could legitimately say Travis were the biggest band in the country at that point when the Man Who came out in all various singles. But I was thinking back to my days watching MTV too, and I was thinking of remember Good Charlotte. Yeah, uh-huh. right? you know there's some girls and boys. Shocking, uh, yeah. No, no, I was listening to it. I think that's a, a world-class song, Girls and Boys, right? <laughs> the song, three minutes. What, well, you've got your head in your hands, Tom. It's, it's listen, right? definitely <laughs> untrue. Just, that's an absolutely untrue not, thing you've just said. This is, your, this is your pigeon detective moment. Tony, Tony, Tony. See in terms of pop song, right? The first chorus comes in within 25 seconds, right? So it's, it's like straight to the good stuff, straight to the good stuff. It's a great wee melody. You know, uh, very, very catchy, very, very well-written song. And the fact that it's like a total sugar rush, it's over and done with very quickly. Great song. I don't know, can't speak for much of the other stuff, but Girls and Boys are the, very good. Their, their first album's pretty good. Um, good Charlotte good. album. I, 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 
listen to it. It's funny you talk about Travis and um, Tony was oh, talking about this. shaking his head here. Oh, this underage, this underage stuff that Travis, like before The Man Who, had a, an album that was much more indie. And there's a song called Under 16 Girls on it, which yeah. I really like, but it's about the same theme. So it's something uh, you can't do arithmetic. Uh, no, no, the opposite team. But uh, he's good at if you're, sure, if you're sure that she's old enough for you, blow your mind. Um, she may look like she knows her stuff, but look her in the eyes and all that stuff. It's uh, it's quite dark in that respect, but it's a really good song. Um, yeah, because sorry, when you go more into the lyrics of the song I was talking about, it's like, would you like to go on a date with me? I know it's old fashioned to say so. Five times five equals twenty five. That, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't go together. <laughs> At least I like that song, but yeah. I mean, you know, some at least you could use under sixteen girls. You could use that as a as a guide. You know that that those lyrics, <laughs> those Maximo Park ones are just like right. You can just imagine start reading it right. So here's you imagine that you're on a date, you're in the toilet cubicle, sweating and, and reading the stuff. So right, right, look at like here it goes five times five is twenty five. What is this? What is this? How how did how, how is this possibly any use to me? But well. So I think there we go. If we're going to learn anything from today's mere one hour forty five fucking hell, need to Jesus Christ. One hour forty five minute podcast is that if you are on a date, give Fran Healy a shout. Do not give Paul Smith a shout. There we go. That was uh, that was really good fun. Uh, Tom Watt, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you to Craig Anderson. Cheers. And thank you to the mouth of the South himself, Mr. Tony Anderson. <laughs> Thanks very much, Craig. Have a wonderful day. Absolutely. Enjoy walking your dog. Yeah, it's, it's not my brother's dog, um, so just to, just to pull you up on that. But yes, I, I, <laughs> sorry. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Remember and uh, subscribe to us via the Patreon page. Um, loads of podcasts coming out. Uh, we've got a, a big bench here, and everyone's got something they want to get off their chest. We will see you next week uh, for, for more of the same. So thank you very much. Cheers. Bye. Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.